Just a quick word from our sponsor, Pattern Life. I am so excited to get the word out about Pattern because one thing I learned the hard way was disability insurance. For me, researching insurance got complicated, time-consuming, and for me, I just got overwhelmed and trusted that my employer had some type of disability insurance, but boy, was I wrong in terms of what those details entailed. Pattern is great because it's actually geared towards clinicians and doctors and has helped thousands of doctors find and understand the insurance they're buying. You just click on the link in the show notes. I did this the other day. It takes two minutes to write your info, request quotes to compare them, or schedule a quick 15-minute phone call and buy risk-free. So request your quote today at patternlife.com so you can use your time better, save money, and be prepared for the unknowns of the future. Don't make mistakes like me and be confident that your family and income are protected no matter what the future holds. And with that, let's get back into the episode. This is Dr. Marty Freed. Dr. Shreya Trivedi. Dr. Varen Kolf. And Dr. Raphael Rubinowitz. This is the Core IM Five Pearls podcast, brought to you by Clinical Correlations, bringing you high-yield, evidence-based pearls. Today, we are talking about latent tuberculosis. A big thank you to Dr. Carly Kaplan Shaw, a pulmonologist at NYU, for peer reviewing this podcast. Today, we're joined by two new guests. Varen is a Palm Crit Fellow at Mount Sinai School of Medicine and Elmhurst Hospital Center, and Raphael is an internal medicine resident at NYU. Welcome, guys. Thanks for having us here, Shred Marty. Thanks again, guys. Appreciate it. So awesome to have you guys here. All right, let's get started with the five questions on the pearls we'll be covering. Test yourself by pausing after each of the five questions. Remember, the more you test yourself, the deeper your learning gains. Pearl one, screening for TB. Who should be screened for latent TB, and how have the guidelines evolved in the recent years? Pearl two, screening tests. What screening tests are available and how do they differ? Pearl 3. Latent TB Infection Treatment What are the treatment options available and how do they differ? Pearl 4. Adverse Drug Effects When selecting a treatment regimen, what are the major adverse drug effects to consider? Pearl 5. Liver Function Testing Follow-Up How frequently should you test LFTs in a patient being treated for LTBI? And what do you do with the results? All right, guys. So let's get started with the patient case. So I recently saw a 30-year-old woman named Mrs. P. She uh, works in childcare. She's coming in for her annual follow-up. She was originally from India and came to America 10 years ago for college. It looks like she's up to date on all her vaccinations and her pap smear is up to date. So I'm about ready to package her up and get her home, right, guys? Well, not so fast, Marty. The USPSTF, I'm going to just call them the task force from now on, they released updated recommendations in September of 2016, and they endorsed that all asymptomatic adults who are at risk for developing latent TB should be screened. Okay. Varen, you're saying asymptomatic at risk for LTBI. So let's break that down. The fact that she's asymptomatic is a given. You know, she's not complaining of fever, cough, night sweats, or weight loss, but Is she considered at risk for LTBI? Well, Shreya, there are three major groups at risk, the first being any close contact of a person with active TB, and the second group being those who are at high risk of exposure, for example, residents and employees of high-risk congregate settings. So those settings are really 
prisons, and that's people who work in prisons or who are prisoners in prison, hospitals, shelters, residential rehab facilities, and don't forget people who work in TB labs. And last would be those patients who were born in or who have previously lived in areas that are highly endemic. All right. So Q Shreya mentioning some CDC map on her computer desktop. No, hey, hey. You can laugh at me all you want, but my desktop is my peripheral brain. And to answer your question, yes, I do have a CDC map on my desktop with the endemic TV countries. <laughs> all right, guys. All right. Let's get back on track. So she's from an endemic country, but she has been in the United States for more than five years now, right? Yeah, wasn't there a recommendation not to screen immigrants after five years for living in a non-endemic country? Yeah, thing is, Marty, those were the ATS CDC guidelines from all the way back in 2000. Ouch, get oh. up to speed, Marty. Oh, burn. That's a burn. Fun facts about the year 2000. <laughs> Blockbuster video declined the chance to buy Netflix for $50 million. <laughs> the Chernobyl power plant was still in operation. And the top song of the year was Independent Woman by Destiny Shot. What's wrong with that song? <laughs> I actually like it. Um, but in all seriousness, uh, there have been several cohort studies performed since then that have shown that the risk of incidence of tuberculosis remains elevated above the general population even five years out of the index immigration event. And that's why latent TB screening is indicated for all asymptomatic adults from endemic countries, regardless of how long they've been in a non-endemic country, such as the United States. Nice. You know, this is great to know because I see so many patients originally from TB endemic countries. I'm definitely going to go back to my clinic templates and add LTBI screening to my healthcare maintenance section. And one important thing to remember is that for patients with recent exposures, it can take up to eight weeks after the initial exposure for the immune system to respond. Enough for the TB test to pick it up, right? So for patients who are coming in after a recent exposure to TB, these tests may be falsely negative and, you know, lull us into a sense of satisfaction with our testing. So if you test during the window period and have a negative result on the initial TB test, you should retest at eight to 10 weeks from the most recent exposure to active TB. For sure. And there's one last group to screen that we don't want to forget about, especially because they aren't included in the task for recommendation. Absolutely, Shreya. Those are our immunocompromised patients, such as HIV-positive patients, those receiving chemo or immunotherapy, and anyone who's post-transplant. Hey, Shreya, can I pimp you on the names of the TNF-alpha inhibitors again? <laughs> oh my goodness, don't make me say it again. So for all our listeners who haven't checked out our hepatitis B recording... Shreya gives a great rundown of TNF-alpha inhibitors. Or lack thereof. But, but, it makes you wonder, right? Why were these immunosuppressed patients not included in the task force recommendations? That's a great question, Viren. For these patients, checking for latent tuberculosis, either during treatment or prior to using any chemo or immunotherapy agents is already considered standard of care. Hence, this particular set of patients was not addressed in the guideline. Great point, Rafael. All right, so let's sum it up. We should be screening all asymptomatic adults for LTBI who have increased risk for infection, including immigrants from endemic countries, regardless of length of stay in the U.S. We should be screening those at higher risk for exposure, and we should be screening the immunocompromised. And remember, the decision to test is a decision to treat, so we should not test patients from low-risk groups. Treating in people without risk factors just leads to false positives and a whole lot of confusion. All right, so since Ms. P is from an endemic country and she's asymptomatic, the question now is, how are we going to screen her for latent TB? I feel like we're setting up for a showdown here. In one corner, we have the old reliable, the anergistic annihilator, the legendary champion of the forearm, the PPD. 
In the other corner, we have the new upstarts, the in vitro violators, the Greek gods of diagnostics, the IGRAs, or in vitro gamma release essays, including the Quantifiron Gold. All right, guys, let's get ready to rumble. (laughs) Okay, let's start with the PPD. Essentially, it involves challenging the patient's immune system with an intradermal injection of over 200 tuberculin proteins. So any person with an intact immunity to these antigens from the past will develop a type 4 delayed type hypersensitivity reaction that's moderated by T lymphocytes. And this is what we measure as the induration that happens 48 to 72 hours after instilling the PPD proteins. And I want to repeat, it's the induration, not the redness. Think of it a little bit like a simulation exercise for the body's T-cells, just outside the body. Right, right. That's a great analogy. So the real plus with skin testing is that it's relatively inexpensive and widely used. The flip side is that it's super inconvenient and the patients have to return for the test to be read. Not to mention that you do have to worry about false positives and false negatives. That's a great point, Marty. In the same vein, PPD testing can give false negatives in patients who do not have a great immune system, right? The main problem with skin testing is its poor specificity, and that leads to false positives that are related to either prior BCG vaccination or infection with non-tuberculosis mycobacteria, henceforth referred to as NTM. Right, Raphael. So for these reasons, the IGRAs perform much better on the specificity front. So quants still require an intact immune system, but it's done in a test tube and stimulates specific TB antigens that are not the BCG vaccine strain and not in most NTMs. Right. So the quantifier has three possible results, positive, negative, and intermediate or indeterminate. This is way simpler than figuring out how to place a PPD correctly, then having the patient come back, and then hoping that it gets read accurately. And geez, when I put it that way, I'm kind of amazed that any of them get done correctly in the first place. Right? I know, I know. So the IGRAs are really useful basically for foreign-born patients because often immigrants are told that once they've received BCG, they'll always have a positive test. In fact, I'll tell you a story. One time, I had a patient lift up his sleeve to show me his TB tattoo, you know, the scar that the vaccination can sometimes leave. And I tried telling him that it's not the case. So, you know, I feel it's important to educate and dispel this myth. Right. I know that BCG vaccines stamp all too well, but I've never had a patient call it a TB tattoo. Well, you're not me. (laughs) (laughs) Right. And I know that the tuberculin skin testing gets a bad rep because things get a little hairy with the BCG vaccine. But keep in mind that if the BCG was given uh, during infancy, the effects on the PPD result are minimal, especially at 10 years post-vaccination. That's a good point. On the flip side, though, if the BCG was given after their first birthday or given multiple times, there's a false positive rate for tuberculin skin testing of 21% even 10 years after their last immunization. Whoa, big difference there. So to summarize, in the battle between IGRAs and TST, we found out that both are acceptable screening modalities for latent TB. But the IGRAs, as also advised by the 2017 ATS guidelines, are preferred. So there's a couple of reasons. One is that they require only a single visit. And two, they're really the test of choice because they have higher specificity in BCG-vaccinated patients and in people who have immigrated from TB-endemic countries or areas. All right, back to our case. Since Ms. P is from India, we opt for a quantifieron. And it comes back, drumroll... Positive. Shocker. This wouldn't be an LTBI podcast without a positive quant gold. Uh, thanks for acting surprised, Marty. <laughs> Her chest x-ray is negative. Now, Raphael, help us out with the treatment. This can get confusing, so let's go through the regimens currently approved by the CDC one by one. 
First is isoniazide or INH daily for nine months being the optimal duration. Alternatively, rifampin can be prescribed daily for four months. And finally, we can use combined INH rifapentin weekly for three months under directly observed therapy. I should note that extending INH to 12 months does not improve efficacy, and treating for only six months is not as efficacious, but it's better than no treatment at all. Wow, so many options there. Which is better? Should I cue another, let's get ready to rumble? (laughs) Guys, there is such a huge difference between these regimens. I mean, it looks like the duration can range from three months to 12 months, and the drugs can be prescribed weekly or daily. Is there any data to help us guide our decision? So I'm familiar with a daily INH therapy being the mainstay LTBI therapy for the last five decades. So I'm not really sure how effective rifampin is. That's a great question, Shreya. The data is limited overall, but a meta-analysis was performed in 2014 using the network approach, and it included 53 RCTs. I was impressed. These RCTs, they examined 15 different treatment regimens. The bottom line, rifampin alone and INH rifapentine regimens outperform the INH-only regimens. I feel like I've been lied to. All right, (laughs) talk to me about the side effects. Absolutely, Marty. That's where a 2011 open-label randomized non-inferiority trial comes into play. It showed that three months of weekly INH rifapentine regimen was not inferior to nine months of INH only. And on top of that, the combination regimen was actually tolerated better by patients and caused less hepatotoxicity. Not to mention, these patients were more compliant with completing their regimen because it was weekly and provided by direct observed therapy for three months only as opposed to nine. So what we need is future randomized trials to directly compare efficacy between shorter duration rifamycin regimens and isoniazid monotherapy. But for now, I think it's clear that these regimens are at least as effective as isoniazid monotherapy. And it looks like there's an improved side effect profile and greater patient compliance. Right. No surprise there. I am the same way. The longer you ask me to do something, the more chances I'm not going to do it as diligently after. Absolutely. So to recap. INH is falling out of favor as first-line treatment for LTBI because of the long duration of treatment, which leads to low adherence, and the availability of two other regimens that appear to be equally efficacious with lower hepatotoxicity and higher adherence rate. Those are self-administered rifampin daily for four months and rifapentine and INH weekly for 12 weeks administered via directly observed therapy. Just a quick word from our sponsor. We all want to eat healthier, but let's be honest. Between our busy schedule and the endless prep and cleanup, it feels kind of out of our reach. You know, we often are aiming for better nutrition, but end up compromising for quick fixes that are anything but healthy. Now, imagine a different scenario. Picture a day where you're coming home to gourmet, nutritious meals that are ready in just two minutes. With Factors, that is possible. Factors delivers delicious, chef-crafted, dietitian-approved meals right to your door, ready to heat in just two minutes, giving you over 35 weekly options to choose from, from calorie smart to protein plus to keto. And don't forget, they have 60 plus add-ons for an extra boost from breakfast to midday bites. So you're not spending all your time and money in the hospital's cafeteria. So no prep, no mess, just real mouthwatering meals tailored to fit your schedule and dietary needs. With fact, you're not just saving time, but you're elevating your meal game without the hassle of cooking. Head to factormeals.com slash coriam50. Use the code coriam50 to get 50% off. That's the code coriam50 at factormeals.com slash coriam50. Solid recap on the latest on the LTBI meds. But either way, you know, Miss P is pretty hesitant about these meds. First of all, she doesn't like taking meds. She's worried about the side effect profile. 
And of course, she read on WebMD that it's not good for her liver. And she's worried. She tells you she drinks on the weekend sometimes on pub crawls with her coworkers. Oh, man. You can't really keep Miss P away from her SantaCon craziness. <laughs> <laughs> Listen, as much as I'd like to hate on WebMD, it kind of looks like they're right onto something here. We should probably talk about the potential hepatotoxicity, which is the most concerning adverse effect of these meds. We already discussed that the INH rifapentine regimen causes less hepatotoxicity. A separate RCT from 2008 demonstrated that the rifampin-only regimen also leads to fewer adverse effects compared to nine months of INH, including hepatotoxicity. So basically, risk is increased in patients who have an underlying liver disease, those who are taking other hepatotoxins, you know, you could think about Tylenol, or those, you know, drugs that are metabolized by the liver, such as alcohol. Sure, that makes sense. So we do our due diligence. We ask her about how much alcohol she's actually drinking, if she's taking any other hepatotoxic drugs or supplements. And then she interrupts us and says, oh, by the way, doc, I forgot to mention, I'm on an OCP. Oh, yeah, let's definitely talk about that. So as we'll remember from step one studying, rifampin is a potent cytochrome P450 inducer and ramps up the liver metabolism, thus lowering therapeutic doses of certain medications. Yeah, and these meds are really important classes. So it includes HIV medications, warfarin, methadone, anti-epileptics, and OCPs like Mrs. P. All of these are metabolized by the cytochrome P450 system and all will have decreased efficacy. In fact, rifampin-based regimens are contraindicated in patients who are on protease and integrase inhibitors, both mainstays of ART regimens. Oof. All right. So things get pretty murky with latent TB patients who also have HIV on heart. And dosages of methadone, warfarin, anti-epileptics, immunosuppressants, OCPs need to be adjusted. So what should we tell Ms. P? So in a nutshell, what she needs to know is that while she's using rifampin and OCPs concurrently, she's not as protected. So she should be using barrier methods of contraception, such as condoms. And this should be counseled to every woman on childbearing age using rifampin with OCPs concurrently. Yeah, especially with those OCPs. We do not want her to become pregos. We all know how worried Shrey is when her patients become pregos. Hey, guys, people are going to think I'm a bad doctor. <laughs> no, Shrey, you're an incredible doctor. Just like me, we're a little uncomfortable with pregnant patients. Right, right. Guys, guys, let's focus, okay? I, I really feel like a dad on this podcast, but I really need you guys to be comfortable with TB medications. Okay, okay. All right, so what are the other adverse effects to look out for with these rifamycin-based regimens like rifampin or rifapentine? So, Shreya, as is well described, both drugs can cause harmless orange discoloration of body fluids, and patients should be warned about this before starting treatment. Solid point. So how would you react to sweating Syracuse Athletics colors? Likely very disconcerting without a warning, wouldn't be? <laughs> right. I particularly warn my patients about this, especially because I am a diehard Villanova girl and bleed blue. Go Nova, beat Qs. I don't know, Shreya. I thought we were going to be friends, but... No! You know, the very, the, the, that very thought is so awful, <laughs> I would rather have my contacts turning yellow-orange. Oh, goodness. <laughs> but not least, uh, both these drugs can cause rare hypersensitivity reactions. And don't forget, there's the side effect of isoniazid that we haven't talked about yet, and it's super important besides the hepatotoxicity. All right, total board question here. Isoniazid causes peripheral neuropathy and hence should be administered with daily pyridoxine vitamin B6. All right, team, so let's sum it up. It does look like there's a lot to consider in terms of the adverse effects of latent TB treatment. Hepatotoxicity is obviously the major adverse effect to look out for and is more likely with INH use. However, the rifamycin-based regimens have significant P450 interactions, especially with antiretroviral meds and methadone, 
which may preclude their use in select patients. All right, so despite our reassurance, Ms. P is still worried about the liver side effects and wants to know if she should get her labs checked and then when should she come back for her labs again? So this is actually something that comes up pretty often. And after talking about all this hepatotoxicity, it got me a little hepato-anxious, not going <laughs> to lie. I mean, it's not like we've said hepatotoxicity about 34 times already. Love that Viren is counting the total. Of course I am. <laughs> yeah, okay. But seriously, guys, how often should I be checking LFTs? And, and does everyone need LFTs checked? I've seen LFTs ordered quite often for patients on latent TB treatment. We recently had a patient who started on a latent TB regimen with isoniazid alone, and her ALT rose to about seven times the upper limit of normal after three months of treatment. The patient was not complaining of anything, so I wasn't sure. How do you approach situations like this? So fortunately, ATS published guidelines addressing this very issue in 2006, and they actually recommended not doing baselines and serial blood tests for healthy asymptomatic patients on either INH or rifamycin. Okay, then who should we get LFTs on? So baseline and follow-up serum ALT and bilirubin are recommended for patients with chronic liver disease, chronic alcohol use, those who are on ART, pregnant patients, or anyone else with risk factors for hepatotoxicity. Oh, this is really good stuff to know. All right, but what do you do if the baseline LFTs are abnormal? If the baseline tests are three times the upper limit, serum ALT and bilirubin should be repeated. Keep in mind that these patients should be checked for other causes that could be leading to hepatitis, such as alcohol use, hepatotoxic drugs, and viral etiologies. Okay, so if the ALT is three times the upper limit of normal, would you even start treatment in these cases? Really, it's a risk versus risk discussion. So on one side, you have the risk of drug-induced liver injury, and on the other side, you have the risk of progression of the LTBI to TB disease. So this discussion should be taken on a case-to-case basis with the patients, I feel, and then make a decision together. All right. So then once we start on treatment, how often should we monitor these tests? So Mari, ALT and bilirubin can be monitored generally every two to four weeks until they stabilize. I do want to point out, guys, that ALT is the preferred test for detecting hepatocellular injury. Okay. So then when do you get worried about these tests? You know, is there a particular lab value or symptom when you should be concerned? So if the patient is symptomatic, for example, they have jaundice, abdominal pain, nausea, vomiting, or any other symptoms of hepatitis, and ALT is three times upper limit of normal, the medication should be held. Alternatively, the regimen should be stopped if ALT is elevated to five times the upper limit of normal without symptoms. Absolutely. And then after stopping the regimen, we should look for other causes. So viral hepatitis, alcohol use, concomitant use of other hepatotoxic drugs should be ruled out. And should the enzyme stay persistently elevated, workup for autoimmune etiologies should be initiated and consideration for a hepatology consult at that point. All right, guys. So let's summarize. The pearl here is don't get LFTs in asymptomatic patients. In those patients with known or who are at risk for liver disease, ALT and bilis should be performed at baseline and monitored on a regular basis, generally every two to four weeks. Treatment should be held if ALT is more than three times the upper limit of normal with symptoms or more than five times the upper limit of normal. And other causes of liver injury should be evaluated in patients with persistent elevations. Great. Okay, with that, I'd like to introduce Dr. Carly Kaplan-Shaw, pulmonologist at NYU Bellevue, and also the medical director of the TB program at Bellevue Hospital for the recap. 
The reason this is so important is because we have excellent antibiotics that are extremely effective for the treatment of active TB, and we've gotten really good at treating active TB, but we are much less good at treating latent TB infection. And the only way we are going to eradicate TB from the world is by preventing cases of active TB before they happen. And the only way to do that is by treating the people who have latent TB infection. And we are talking about a quarter to a third of the world's population. Pearl 1. Who should we test for latent TB infection? It's very important to remember that the only patients who should be tested for latent TB infection are those that truly have a risk of TB exposure. Those groups are primarily patients who are coming from countries where TB is endemic or people who are living or working in congregate settings. We then look at those patients and look at who do we need to evaluate and treat most urgently. And those are patients who are immunosuppressed and have an increased risk of progression to active disease. After all, that's what we're trying to prevent. People with immunosuppression include children under five, patients who have untreated HIV or cancers, and we are now dealing with a lot of different immunosuppressive drugs, uh, patients who have undergone organ transplant, patients on chronic steroids, and those who are taking TNF antagonists. Another very important one to remember is diabetes. We have a ton of diabetes and a ton of latent TB infection throughout the world, and we really desperately need to focus our efforts on treating LTBI in patients with diabetes. Pearl 2, how do we test for latent TB infection? So there are two main tests that we use. The one that we've been using for eons is the PPD, purified protein derivative, also known as the tuberculin skin test, TST. We now have interferon gamma release assays. The big advantage is that these are blood tests that can be performed in one visit. And the major, major advantage is that in the foreign-born, we have a significantly reduced rate of false positives. With the TST, we will be picking up positive TSTs as a result of BCG vaccination. The IGRAs completely eliminate that source of false positives, so we know that we will be identifying positive tests in those who truly have latent TB infection. Pearl 3. What are the treatments for latent TB infection? Historically, INH for nine months has been the standard of care, and we are now seeing a big change. Increasingly, we are moving towards rifampin-based regimens for latent TB infection, rifampin daily for four months, or a combination of rifapentine and INH weekly for 12 weeks using directly observed therapy. And the importance of these regimens are, number one, they are much shorter duration, which contributes to improved adherence and the risk of hepatotoxicity is lower. Pearl 4, what are the issues with these treatments for latent TB infection? The main issue with rifamycin-based regimens are interactions with other drugs, methadone, oral contraceptive pills, antiepileptic medications, and antiretrovirals. So we need to be very careful about using these medicines in patients who are taking these drugs Rifamycin is actually contraindicated for those with HIV on antiretroviral drugs, and it's very important that we counsel women of childbearing age that if they are using oral contraceptives and taking rifamycin concurrently, they need to use barrier methods for contraception. Pearl 5, how do we monitor treatment with latent TB infection? So the important thing here is that really the vast majority of patients who we are treating for latent TB infection 
require no baseline blood tests and no monitoring with blood tests throughout the course of treatment. What we really need to do is, on the first visit, identify risk factors for hepatotoxicity, which include HIV, history of hepatitis, alcohol use, or use of other hepatotoxic drugs, and then it's all about patient education. Patients need to be told what the signs and symptoms of hepatitis are. These include yellowing of the skin and eyes, abdominal pain, nausea, vomiting, and patients should know the minute they develop any of these symptoms, stop the medications, and come in to be evaluated. Patients with increased risk for hepatotoxicity, like the patients with HIV, hepatitis, or alcohol use, should have baseline bloods drawn and can be monitored throughout treatment to ensure that those levels are stable. The other thing that's very important is to remind patients not to be surprised when their urine and body fluids turn orange. This is normal with any rifamycin-based regimen, and it's actually a way that we can determine if patients are actually taking their medications. If your urine is an orange, you're probably not taking the medicine. All right, Dr. Kaplan Shaw, that was an excellent recap. Thank you so much. All right, thanks for listening. If you have any questions, please email us at coreimpodcast at gmail.com or tweet us at at coreimpodcast. We're also on Facebook and Instagram at coreimpodcast. Opinions expressed in this podcast are our own and do not represent the opinions of NYU or other affiliated institutions. Do not use this podcast for medical advice. Instead, see your own healthcare provider for medical care. All right, thanks for joining us. See you guys next Wednesday. Take care. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently, by using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies, we keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. When I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com podcast. That's Indeed.com podcast. Terms and conditions apply.